Good afternoon, London. I feel like it's been a very busy day already. Lots going on here in London, in the city. Also, lots happening in our newsroom here at 980 CFPL, working on a lot of stories, keeping you up to date this afternoon. We have, uh, we're looking or rather waiting perhaps for a possible update later on in the afternoon on to, into the fatal crash in Nairn from yesterday afternoon that uh, very tragically claimed the life of a little girl, seven years old. Her mother is still in hospital. She was in critical condition, has been upgraded to stable. That's the latest from the OPP. They are still investigating the cause of that crash. They're asking everyone not to speculate right now. They are working through the evidence. The uh, collision investigators are piecing things together. They also have witness statements. That's the latest that our newsroom has had from uh, OPP Constable Adam Crudson with the uh, Ontario Provincial Police. We will bring you the latest on that story as it becomes available. The other story that we are watching right now that uh, came down not long ago from London Police, an update in the Sobeys investigation from about a week and a half ago. It was July 17th when this incident happened. There was an altercation between two men at that location, and now charges have been laid in connection with it. To talk about more about what the latest is on that case, we have a Constable Sandasha Bow from London Police who joins us on the line, and she is very kindly going to give us a little bit of history, a little bit of background on what happened in this case. Constable Sandasha Bow. So what took place was on uh, Tuesday, July 17th, uh, London police responded to a grocery store with respect to two males who were arguing inside. Now, our officers attended, determined that there was uh, an argument or an incident that took place between two men, um, and then a second interaction actually took place, and this one was recorded on video and posted on social media, um, and that took place between the two males uh, in the checkout area of the grocery store. Now, there were no injuries, and uh, both of the males left the store, and the victim in that matter actually chose to proceed or chose not to proceed with charges in relation to the incident. Uh, However, the Lenham Police Service Hate Crime Unit reviewed the incident, and uh, due to the fact that there were race-related comments reported and made during that interaction, uh, the information was presented to the Crown Attorney's Office, and through consultation with their office, it was determined that there was enough evidence to support uh, with charges. Okay, and just for anyone who hasn't heard yet, those charges, uh, there was was three of them, right? Yes, uh, the three charges are assault, forcible confinement, and causing a disturbance. Okay, and now for anyone listening who is maybe confused about uh, those charges and why there isn't um, a hate component to them, there is a good reason for that. Yes, uh, hate-motivated crime is something that comes into play during sentencing. So it's a factor in sentencing and not in the crime itself. So what will take place is when this goes forward in court, uh, the Crown Attorney's Office will present all of the information necessary. They'll look over uh, any of the evidence, uh, talk to witnesses involved, all of that, and they'll determine whether or not uh, this hate-related type comments or or anything else uh, plays a factor in that final sentencing. And that's the case for any investigation uh, that moves forward, not just this one. And it, yeah, it depends on, I guess, the outcome of the case and whether you get to that point where there is a sentencing uh, hearing. Definitely. It, it depends on the situation. It depends on uh, the specific charges, everything. And so all of that will be presented at uh, the time this goes to trial. 
Something else that's interesting about this case is that um, off the bat, you mentioned that the uh, alleged victim did not want to proceed with charges when he was first, uh, you know, interacting with officers. Um, But you mentioned that, you know, officers took the information to the Crown and that charges were laid anyway. Uh, Some people might think, well, if the victim didn't want charges laid, how come it it, like went on to that level? Is there is there a way to explain that for everyone to understand it? Well, we are always victim-centered. We take victim-centered approaches when it comes to anything. If a victim doesn't want to proceed with charges, then that's their decision. However, in this particular case, we did have enough evidence without the victim. Uh, so, for example, there was video uh, with respect to the incident itself. So we were able to use that video uh, instead of uh, the victim in relation to this one. And we, in presenting that to the Crown Attorney's Office, they determined that, yes, there was enough evidence to proceed with those charges. I think that it's interesting uh, to see how the process of of um, discussion and communication between police and the Crown's office works. Uh, it's, it's something that not everyone gets a chance to, to view. I've been uh, in an interesting position in the work that I do where I've, I've covered court cases, same as many of my colleagues here at 980 CFPL. Uh, but just for anyone who's wondering, because sometimes we hear stories and we think, well, what's the reasoning behind that? And it's not always clear just because of, uh, you know, how stories roll out. Uh, but if we have a chance to kind of discuss the, uh, the inner workings of how how the, the thought process uh, kind of rolls out. It's interesting to be able to kind of give that clarification and that information. Um, is there anything else that the public should need needs to know about uh, the case and the investigation as it stands right now? Are, you, are officers still looking for information from the public? Well, we're always looking for information. So anytime we have any type of an investigation, we always ask the public, if you have additional information, please give us a call. Um, our investigations are always ongoing, and if new information is presented or uh, if we're able to continue with an investigation based on new information or new evidence, then that's something that we always look at. And while this one, uh, the individual involved is going to be reappearing or appearing in court uh, here in London on September 12th in relation to these charges. Okay. Well, Constable Sendashabao, thank you so much for your time today and for explaining uh, how this case is, is, is continuing to develop and letting people know what the status is. All right. Thank you for the invitation. Another important note uh, from Constable Bao is that uh, when she was referencing the, the um, I guess, procedure for when officers and the Crown will move forward with laying charges without uh, the victim involved in the process in terms of they, if they have said, no, I don't want to press charges, there are other cases where officers will move forward with charges and those uh, involve typically uh, incidents that are quite serious. So if it's a domestic incident where the victim may not feel comfortable moving forward with charges, uh, if there's enough evidence, officers will. If it's another type of serious assault, they will consider it. And also if there is a weapon involved, the officers will uh, look into that with the Crown as well. We need to take our first break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about prices at the pumps. The NDP of Ontario apparently has a plan to try and make them a little bit more predictable. We'll talk about that coming up on 980 CFPL. Hello again. We are back on the program London Live on 980 CFPL. We are talking about something that never fails to rile people up, no matter where you are, basically across the province, across Canada, gas prices. It's it's expensive out there. My car right now actually probably could use a refill a little bit. I'm under a quarter tank right now, which is always a bit of the danger zone. I don't like it. I prefer to have a full tank whenever possible. But you know what? It's expensive to fill up and you can't be filling up all the time. And it's funny because the NDP is talking about 
practically that same thing. Not my gas level in my car specifically, but they want to make it a little bit more affordable uh, for Ontarians to fill up when they do need to. And they have put forward a um, bill... Timmins MPP for the New Democrats, Gilles Bisson. Uh, he held a press conference today, a media conference, talking about uh, the bill that would regulate the price of gas in the province. They're hoping to make it a little bit more predictable for Ontarians. Uh, we have a few clips from his news conference this morning, and uh, the lovely Andrew Graham, our producer, is going to play a couple of them for us. And then you look at what's going on with the price of gas these days. There are price swings from week to week and from weekend to weekend that could be as much as 10 or 15 cents, depending where you live in the province. And if you look at the regional price differences across Ontario, it's just like it's absolute uh, horrendous what we see with the price of gas. Uh, you'll pay as low as a dollar twenty something here in around Hamilton area, and you'll pay as much as a dollar fifty nine in places like Sioux Lookout. Well, never mind from community to community. It's the time of day here in London is you'll see a swing of, gosh, you know, I don't know, five to 10 cents a litre, depending on the time of day you're filling up. Uh, Gilles Bisson also had a bit more of an explanation of how the bill would work. And what this bill simply does is to say the price of gas will be established based on the rack price in New York. Factor in through the Energy Board of Ontario what it costs to, uh, to produce, the, to buy the oil, what it costs to transform it, what it costs to transport it, what it costs to retail it. Make sure there's a fair return on investment for those people in the business of moving and selling gas, but to make sure that we, the public, don't get squeezed. Interesting. We, the public, don't get squeezed. I feel like we're always probably going to get squeezed at the pumps. It's just, it's kind of inevitable. I, you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> and Gilles Bisson also had this to say about uh, some of his colleagues at Queen's Park and whether they've supported measures like this in the past. If you remember the last time we had this bill in the legislature, the current finance minister, Mr. Fideli, and other conservatives voted in favor of the bill. I'm hoping it will be the same again and that we can at least get this bill into committee and hopefully pass it within a regular reasonable amount of time uh, so that we can protect consumers at the pump. If truly we're for the people in this legislature, this is legislation that speaks to people. We need to make sure that we protect the public when it comes to the price of gas. Okay, so will this bill actually do what the NDP says it will or hopes that it will? Let's find out. We have Dan McTagg on the line from with us. He's a senior gas analyst with GasBuddy.com. Dan, what do you make of this? Well, it's a development, but it sort of gets recycled every once in a while when uh, certain members of the New Democratic Party uh, provincially get a little anxious or uppity. Uh, you know, again, uh, when you can't figure out and you can't understand how energy markets uh, domestically and globally work, then default back to simply regulating. But I don't think that's going to work. And uh, frankly, uh, as I've uh, thought more and more about this, uh, the idea of advancing it is one thing for political reasons, but the idea itself, if implemented, would be dumber than a bank of hammers. <laughs> okay, you're not mincing words, and and I mean that's good. You know, you know what you're what you're talking about here. So, uh, for for people who may look at the NDP idea and say, "Hey, that sounds good to me," tell them why this wouldn't work. Then, in your opinion. Well, let's use the London model, which I think is probably one of the uh, poster child or poster boy, poster girl for the entire province. In the afternoon, uh, the price drops about anywhere from 5 to 10 cents a litre. That's retailers competing against each other. So on a day like today, 
We started off the morning 137, 138 a liter. Uh, by this evening, it would be down to 127, 128. Under our regulated price uh, regime, that would, le- that would end, and you would always be paying the highest price, which would be the dollar 38, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, until the government decided what a proper price would be. But that's really only the tip of the iceberg. Um, my sense is that that would, in a market like London, uh, with average consumers using about uh, 60 liters a week and knowing exactly when to buy, usually evenings or late evenings, the uh, the total loss on 60 liters would probably work out uh, in the vicinity of about a three to four hundred dollar loss uh, per driver per year. So uh, it works in 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 markets where they didn't have predictability. So in the Maritimes, where you have it, they're small, tiny markets. You know, you're dealing with Prince Edward Island, where the population is less than half of that of London's, uh, or Nova Scotia, where it's about the same, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, but those price regimes or regulated prices came in at a time when people wanted predictability. They wanted that sort of security of knowing what the price is going to be and that didn't fluctuate during the week. Well, in that time, the 20 years or so, things have developed. Um, and I'm not just referring, of course, to what I do or what Gas Buddy does in terms of predictability. There's a lot more knowledge out there as to how the market really works. And uh, we know that prices right now, if you go to Bloomberg Energy, look for Airbob gasoline, RBOB gasoline, unleaded, uh, you'll see it. It's, uh, it's trading down almost uh, a penny to a penny and a half, or about three and a half cents a gallon, which means that uh, in 24 to 48 hours, you're going to see a one-cent wholesale price drop. And that's how the market works. It's also important to understand that the market is not what happens here in Ontario, or in Canada, but globally. Uh, you can't have much predictability or, or influence on what the price of oil or what world prices are for gasoline at the New York market. That has a lot to do with what's happening externally. So for that reason, uh, you know, offering the idea simplistic uh, and those who think this is a great idea should just do a little bit of research because the idea is, uh, is not well thought out and it's usually trotted out every once in a while when certain cranky members of the uh, provincial legislature have nothing better to do. It's interesting because a lot of people will look at, um, I guess, you know, they they think we're in southwestern Ontario, we have refineries or oil movement in Sarnia, you know, we have, uh, you know, oil production or bitumen production out in Alberta. Why is it then when we have a domestic supply that it's so expensive for us to buy at the pumps? I, I hear that a lot from people who question it. Well, if it's just down the road in Sarnia, why is it so expensive here at our gas stations in London? Yeah, well, Jesse, we pay world price for gasoline and for all of our commodities, and we get world prices. So when we build trains or we sell cereal or whatever, we get world prices for the things that we produce. Um, And that's something that we've been doing for 40 years in this country. I don't think anyone's suggesting that we don't pay or that we don't earn world price for our goods and services. But what's critical for people to understand is that unlike jurisdictions outside of Ontario or perhaps south of the border, uh, we're not paying massive taxes. We're not paying 43 cents on the dollar uh, on, on every liter of gasoline in taxes, which I understand the NDP who is proposing this today is not going to mention anything about, uh, including the carbon tax. We also don't take into consideration that when we pay world prices, we have to pay it in U.S. dollars. The, US, the world currency, benchmark currency, is the U.S. dollar. And the Canadian dollar, as we know, has been suffering. It takes 130 pennies to buy one U.S. dollar. A lot of that has to do with the fact that the same political actors are not doing a whole lot except blocking pipelines in this country, and that's having the effect of depressing the value of our oil. In other words, Canadian oil um, benchmarks about $40 a barrel today versus the world, which is getting anywhere from 68 to 75 
uh, is is uh, having an effect on diminishing the value of the dollar. And that, in turn, by the way, is means that our purchasing power goes out the window. Because we're not selling enough oil, because we have politicians in this country, uh, especially, ironically, on the NDP side, blocking pipelines, especially the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline, which could deliver an extra six or 700,000 barrels and drive up the value of the Canadian dollar, you and I are losing about 15 cents in purchasing power because the dollar is no longer responding to it what, the way it has in the past when oil prices have gone up. The value of the Canadian dollar was virtually on par with the United States. So it's a it's one of those hidden things that I don't think the NDP is really considering here in terms of their quick and easy, uh, fast and dirty, you know, uh, regulate everything, but don't uh, don't let the facts get in the way of your political opinion. Unfortunately, uh, not looking at these things is hurting the Canadian economy as a whole. It's hurting jobs. It's hurting affordability. These are the things I once thought the NDP really actually cared about. So given then the, I guess, current political situation that we're in, we have a majority Tory government right now. Uh, you're, you're, are you thinking that this is basically dead in the water here, this legislation that they're proposing? Well, it's going to be out there for some people in the media to consider. And I understand that the proposer, who I've had many discussions with in the past, Gilles Bisson, uh, will continue to bring this out as long as he's an MPP. The irony, however, is that in many northern cities, and here I'm referring to, oh, I don't know, Sault Ste. Marie, uh, North Bay, gas prices are actually cheaper than they are in the mornings here in London, and certainly in Toronto at a dollar thirty-four to a dollar thirty-six. Um, if you look at the Gas Buddy website, you'll see the uh, prices are a little less expensive. So for those from MPPs in the north who think that's a terrible thing that we need to have, uh, you know, uh, regulated gas prices, what you're in fact saying to your constituents up north is that they should pay an extra five to ten cents a liter. So I'm not sure that's something that's been very well thought out by the proposers, but if I'm living in northern Ontario, I know that uh, the cost of gasoline uh, X transportation is about the same as it is in southern Ontario, and we don't have refineries up north, so I get the idea. But for us here in Ontario, I think we have to be mindful of uh, the fact that uh, we have, yes, we have three, four refineries in the province. We're making just enough to meet our needs. There was a time in a place 20-some-odd years ago where I argued the need to ensure that we maintain our refineries and keep uh, keep them viable. But if you continue to uh, load on them uh, new clean technologies, the state-of-the-art differences in carbon emissions and whatnot standards, you're going to wind up driving those refineries uh, south or to move out or simply close down, in which case we will be importing more fuel, in which case you'll be paying a whole lot more than you are today, not to mention the fact that the Canadian dollar will suffer. Uh, taxes won't change. So I don't see a really positive scenario. I don't think this thing is well thought out. I think it's a very quick, easy way and snappy way to get people talking about gasoline. But if they're going to ask my opinion, as I said earlier, uh, the idea of regulating gas prices right now for a consumer driving today would be dumber than a bag of hammers. All right. Well, we will leave it at that hot take. (laughs) Dan, we're going to let you go because I know it's a busy day for you. Lots of people want to hear your uh, thoughts on this. Thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us. Oh, thanks for having me today. Well, we'll see again how the rest of the, I guess, unveiling of this proposed bill will go. It's, uh, I think, hitting the legislature floor around 3.15 this afternoon. So the uh, news crew heading into the news wheel at 3 o'clock will have the latest for you uh, throughout the afternoon and into the early part of the evening. They'll have uh, the latest from Queen's Park in Toronto on how it's received. Again, the NDP and MPP Gilles Bisson from the Timmins area is tabling this, uh, hoping to regulate gas prices in the 
province. We'll see how the majority Tories view that. Now, if you're interested, gas prices right now in London, we're looking at, according to Gas Buddy, you know, we'll, we'll tip our hat to Dan McTagg there. Uh, you're looking at mostly a range of 125.5 all the way up to 129.5 at some places. Most of most of the numbers I'm seeing right now on the website are about 120, 125, 126. So it's not terrible. I've seen worse. And uh, I don't know. I know a lot of people have like very favorite places that they go to fill up. They're very loyal. I am. I have one one spot in particular that I like to go quite a bit. And I find they have pretty good prices. So I know that it's a it's a political thing, not just at Queen's Park. People get very, very picky about their, their places where they go to fill up. My dad, very particular. He has a, he has a, a set in his mind that one spot that he likes to go has better quality gas than any other. So he's he's very particular about it. So I just say, okay, I, I believe you, but I'll go to my other place. So, you know, got to do what you got to do. <laughs> anyway, after the break, we need to, uh, well, first of all, we need to hear from Jacqueline LaBelle. She's got the latest on what's happening here in town and uh, across the region. And then when we come back, we're going to have a chat with the man who is at the helm of power at the Western Fair, Hugh Mitchell. He's coming in for an in-studio chat with us to talk about what's going on with him and his plans for the future. He's retiring from the CEO position at Western Fair. So all that and so much more coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Hello, you're back with London Live. Yes, I am Jess Brady. Yes, I am your guest host. The lovely Mike Stubbs is on vacation this week. Well-deserved. I hope he has his feet up and he's relaxed and just taking it all in. We have kind of gloomy skies out there right now. The sun isn't shining. I guess Mike's not tanning right now, but that's okay. Maybe he'll get some in later, later this week. Uh, 24 degrees. That's pretty pretty good, pretty comfortable right now. Well, we are going to let you know that we have very special guest in studio with me right now. We have Hugh Mitchell, who is the CEO and president of the Western Fair, and he is here to chat about what's going on with him on a personal level, also a little bit about what's happening at the Western Fair. Hugh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. And it's great to have you with us. And big news for you personally, you've been with the Western Fair now for 13 years, right? Yeah, I have uh, my latest stint. Mm -hmm. I previously was with the association twice, so a total of 28 years. Oh, uh, as first a eight year stint in the eighties, then a seven year stint in the nineties, and now thirteen years, and uh, now starting to transition myself out of the day to day role of CEO right. into a role of strictly president, working on strategic board initiatives. That's fantastic. So this is the third tour of duty. You it know is. this place inside and out, not only Western Fair, but also London, obviously. You've been a very integral person in this community with what you do. So tell me a little bit, like, in terms of a look back, all of the changes that have happened at Western Fair from your time there. Big, You must have seen some big changes happen. Yeah, I have, actually. Uh, some monumental changes, particularly as I think back to 1981 when I started. But in my third tour of duty, which began in 2005, uh, certainly some significant changes. We've seen us uh, – we were just nicely getting into the four-pad arena business when I arrived. So the sports center has survived the test of time and has been real a real community uh, facility and uh, has been quite successful, if I can, if I can say. The second piece is we've um, – Invested uh, heavily, another $7 million in the Agriplex and renovated it. Uh, and it has become somewhat of a state-of-art uh, um, consumer show and trade show facility. 
In addition to that, we've um, done considerable vertical integration of ourselves. So our core business of shows, uh, we now have nine, a stable of nine. When I arrived in 05, we were around three or four. So we've made considerable progress on that front as well. Uh, and uh, of late, we've managed to survive the cancellation of the racetrack slot program, and our racing operation now has some long-term funding available to it from government. So that brings some uh, element of uh, predictability and sustainability to our racing operation. Just hearing you list off all of the activities that go on at Western Fair and all of the facilities that are there to be made use of. And honestly, like working in the newsroom, we often talk with the crew over at Western Fair and the operations to to find out what events are happening. I mean, not often does a weekend go by where we're not discussing something that's happening there. And it's, it's neat because it's such a hub for different activities. And, you know, when you're out just socially with your friends, be like, oh, you're heading over to the Western Fair this weekend. Oh, what's going on? And then it's like, oh. Oh, beer and barbecue show, boat show, like just always jam-packed with people. Yeah, and, and you know, that's, that's our role, really, um, to become an entertainment uh, destination, um, complementing other venues in the city, uh, not just doing it our own, but supporting others as we uh, fulfill our mandate as an ag society. So we're quite pleased with the progress we've made, the relationships we've de- developed, Um but as I say that, you're, you know, uh, there's always room for improvement. And so we constantly are looking for ways to innovate um, and grow our business. Uh, we got into the market business just recently and we're growing that to a two-day event and we're pleased with that progress. So, yeah, we uh, we tend to – be a fairly active organization with some good governance. I must say we've got a great board who's very innovative and creative and very supportive, which makes a big difference. It's funny that you mentioned the market because I think of that area, like Old East Village, especially it's thriving right now. It's really blossoming with lots of different businesses coming up. The market has certainly been integral to that and really, uh, you know, it's such a great anchor at the Western Fair. The Western Fair is part of that anchor. And it's nice to see that continued development of it. It really is. And Dave Cook um, really deserves a lot of credit for getting that market to to the degree it is and the role it plays in that neighborhood. We have a great neighborhood, a great relationship with the Old East Village BIA and the Community Association. They're wonderful people to work with. Um, they, uh, they, They have a great attitude about growing themselves and uh, ushering in change, which is which is all really good. And it shows as you walk through all these area today. Um, and then we're, we're just, we're happy to be part of the neighborhood. And I mean that sincerely. Um, we're, uh, we're not the only piece, but uh, we, uh, we're pleased to be part of it for sure. And so looking towards this next year, as you transition out of the CEO position and just really focus on that presidency, if you will, and, and helping uh, with ongoing projects, what are some of the biggest priorities then over the next year? I can, I can think of one that's, that's in the middle of, of, of some discussions and, uh, sure. you know, uh, but if you wanted to chat about how that's going along and some of the other things that are happening. Yeah. So I'll, I'll start with <laughs> some of the easy stuff, which is <laughs> obviously working with the board to find my replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as CEO. So the timelines are not uh, firm, but mm-hmm. uh, within the next year, we hope to have someone in place that uh, 
will uh, assume those duties. Right now, two very capable colleagues of mine, Michael Woods, the COO, and Reg Ash, the CAO, are uh, fulfilling those duties. But that's one piece. Another piece is um, finding our role in an ever-changing and evolving ag and food strategy for this region uh, and this city. And because of our agricultural mandate, we think we have an important role to play in providing some element of leadership, if not support, uh, for uh, a more relevant and meaningful way of we can deliver on our ag and food mandate. So that's top of mind, and it's a bit of a passion for me mm-hmm. coming from the country uh, and having been educated in agriculture. Um, another piece, as uh, you alluded to, I think, is the gaming one. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, we're making progress, in my, in my opinion. It's a complex one because we have uh, – we're part ownership of the land with the City of London. And then it's a third-party private sector operator, Gateway Casinos, who we're dealing with and who were winners of the uh, license for this southwestern region. So um, I th- I'd characterize it as we're making progress. Uh, we meet regularly. Uh, we have to do some rezoning because of uh, the fact that table games are being added to the menu of gaming options um, in addition to slots, more slots. So that's all uh, require requires a rezoning application to be filed, which has is in the process. So there's some compl- complexities to it. It isn't all just straight negotiations, but uh, I, th- I think they're pretty positive from my perspective. And uh, we hope to have a resolution um, for everybody's benefit um, out there in the next three to four weeks if, mm. uh, if, uh, if things go as we expect. And then the final piece is just implementing uh, and executing the new long-term funding formula for racing. Agriculture is in our DNA. Racing is an important part of that mandate and uh, horse racing, that is. And uh, so there's some uh, – that that funding program begins in 2019. So there's some lead-up work that I'll be working with the the OLG and uh, the ministry, uh, finance minister, on on, uh, the execution of that funding program for Western Fair. Okay. And on a personal level then, once you take off on the CEO position, you know, you have a little bit more free time once the other priorities are taken care of. On a personal level then, what are you looking forward to with with this extra time that you'll have? Well, um, thank you for asking. Uh, (laughs) I I live on a 20-acre hobby horse farm. So uh, as I said earlier, my passion is agriculture. So I'm fortunate enough to be living in rural Ontario. Uh, It's just west of London. So uh, we have animals, horses and dogs and uh, a bit of property. And uh, I'm not a world traveler, to be honest with you. Me and my wife are not world travelers, uh, although we do take the occasional trip. We're very fixated on home. And we have uh, now three grandchildren and uh, I have three children. Um, and so lots of family to, uh, to enjoy the, the golden years with. Sounds idyllic. I enjoy the idea of that. That looks sounds very, very nice. Thank and you. I can picture it in my mind. Thank you. <laughs> On the Mitchell homestead. Very nice. Well, Hugh, thank you so much for being here today and for sharing, uh, you know, what's going on at Western Fair, the plans for the future and your own personal plans. And uh, thank you for all of all of your work and all the tours of duty over at Western Fair. 
Well, thank you very much. And <laughs> I uh, do enjoy your work and your station and uh, the community engagement that you have and continue that good work. Thanks again. Well, thank you. And we need to take a little quick break on that note, but I'm going to leave you with this idea. What would you do? And Hugh can tell us too. What would you do if a rock star walked into your restaurant? I don't know what I would do. First of all, I can't imagine myself owning a restaurant. But if a rock star walked in, I'd be pretty floored. We're going to talk to someone who that happened to coming up after this on London Live, 980 CFPL. Hello. We are back on the program, London Live on 980 CFPL. I am, again, your guest host, Jess Brady, filling in for Mike Stubbs. He's on vacation this week. Lucky ducky that he is getting some well-deserved R&R. Well, if you heard me before the break, I mentioned what would you do? If a celebrity walked into your restaurant, maybe you own the restaurant, maybe you're just at the restaurant having a bite to eat, and this big celebrity walks in, what do you do? You go over, you say hi, you shake their hands, get a picture. Well, the crew down in Leamington at Jose's Bar and Grill had that chance because Gene Simmons of Kiss fame walked in last week and they got a chance to kind of shake hands with him and hang out. We have Tim Andrady on the line. He is the manager of Jose's Bar and Grill in Leamington. And Tim, you had quite the experience. Tell me about it. It was actually uh, last week, about Thursday, uh, we had heard Gene Simmons was in the area and that he would probably be stopping by. Uh, we weren't sure if it was going to be Wednesday or Thursday, but he ended up coming in Thursday for lunch. Um, he ended up coming in a little bit later for lunch, but we had people here, the word got out about pretty much right at 11 o'clock when we opened, and we were pretty busy all lunch, and then he came in uh, about 1.30 or so, and he was here till almost 3. That's crazy. When I first heard about this this morning, I thought, Gene Simmons in Leamington, like, what What are the odds? I mean, I know that his, yeah. his wife, Shannon Tweed, is Canadian. You know, she was born in Newfoundland. Uh, but I was stunned that he would, would be in this neck of the woods. What was he doing in Leamington? I'm not sure exactly. Rumors are he's working with uh, one of the greenhouse operations here on some medical marijuana deal. Ah, not okay. sure exactly. I can't confirm, but that's the rumors going around. Can't confirm or deny. Okay, that's that's <laughs> yeah. interesting now. All right, now, now the pieces of the puzzle are fitting together a little bit more. Yeah. Not that Leamington's not lovely and wouldn't attract many a celebrity. It was just a little mm-hmm. bit, I wondered. <laughs> yeah. That's really neat. So when he was there, like you said, he was there for uh, almost a couple of hours. That's really neat. Did he order anything in particular? Uh, He had our blackened salmon salad. Uh, That day we did feature a a Kiss burger with uh, roasted red pepper and uh, sort of laying off of it like a tongue hanging out of the burger. (laughs) That's fantastic. And so he knew about that. How come he didn't order it? Not sure. I don't know if he's not a burger guy or just looking for a little healthier option or... (laughs) That's too funny. Did he? I hope he took a picture with the burger because that's pretty classic. I'm not sure if he did. I know he was taking pictures with a lot of the guests and uh, our general manager here and stuff. I didn't manage to get a picture with him. I was busy cooking at the time. But, oh, uh, man. Yeah. That's funny. I guess that is the responsibility kicking in of the manager. You know, you're doing a good job, working hard. Don't have time for playing around while you're at work. Eh? Yeah. 
I managed to like say hi and shake his hand as he was heading out. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, no, we had quite a few people in here, so we had all hands on deck helping out. So yeah, I bet, and I'm not surprised that it would have uh, you know uh, attracted quite the crowd because I mean, mm-hmm. Gene Simmons. I mean, he's he's very well known, obviously. So that's yep. pretty yep. nuts. Have you guys had any other like big names come in before, or is this kind of like the first um, time? I know I was talking to the gentleman earlier, and uh, we don't really get very many. I know a few years ago when uh, the Super Bowl was in Detroit, our Windsor location had a few celebrities in. But uh, thinking about it a little bit more, I know this coming weekend we have our uh, Hogs for Hospice uh, big concert fundraiser in the area. And last year we actually had Brett Michaels was one of the headliners, and he did stop in as well after his show very late, and it was like, unannounced there wasn't very many people here yeah but that's probably the biggest we've had since then but uh yeah it was it was pretty interesting yeah no kidding and and so do you think the uh the kiss burger is going to stay on the menu or was this just a one-shot deal uh probably just one shot for now we might run it again and see but uh i don't know i'm hoping maybe they'll uh They'll get him to do the uh, Hogs for Hospice show next year, but uh, I don't know if they're really still touring at all. So Yeah, well, hey, you never know. Anything is possible. While we yeah. have you, let's talk a little bit about that Hogs for Hospice uh, event that's coming up. Um, what exactly, obviously, the name kind of indicates what you're supporting there, but tell me a little bit more about it, about the cause. Uh, it's a three-day bike fest, basically, we have here at uh, the Seacliff Park in Leamington. Uh, the Friday night, we're having Cheap Trick performing this year, and the Saturday night, we have Randy Hauser performing. And then there's uh, various different vendors and uh, food trucks and stuff there, as well as other bike games going on during the event, too. I believe the Friday, there's also a uh, large bike ride. Uh, it goes down to Point Pelee and around the county a little bit, and then back to the... Uh, the fairgrounds there, Seacliff Park. Fantastic. And so the uh, local, I guess, uh, charity that's benefiting from the funds raised? Uh, the uh, Leamington Hospice Fund, yeah. Fantastic. Well, that's that's great. And how many years have you guys been doing this event? This will be the third year. Third, okay. Well, that's fantastic. Well, uh, hopefully that this, uh, you know, attracts maybe a little bit more uh, attention for the event next weekend, and we'll keep our fingers crossed for you. If anybody wants tickets, where can they go? How should they get a hold of you for that? Uh, there's a few different locations in Leamington here at Jose's Bar and Grill. Uh, also, Speedy Print, I know, is another vendor. Um, I'm pretty sure you can get them online as well. I believe it's just hogsforhospice.com. I know they have a Facebook page as well. That's so. great. Well, perfect. Well, Tim, congrats on uh, on the upcoming event and also on pulling in one of the biggest rock stars around. <laughs> That's pretty yeah. neat. And uh, hopefully the excitement continues for you guys and you have a have a blast in the upcoming weekend. All right, thank you very much. So my question now, London, is have you ever met a celebrity? Have you been in the situation that Tim and uh, the folks down in Leamington were, where you're just minding your own business and in walks a celeb of, of whatever genre, music, if they're a sports star, what have you. Have you met someone famous in that kind of way? I want to hear from you. So call me if you're local, 519-643-2222. That's 519-643-2222. If you're out of town but listening to us, first of all, thanks for being so dedicated. And second of all, the number is 1-866-354-8255. That's 1-866-354-8255. 
You can also email me at jess at 980cfpl.ca, or you can tweet to my handle is at jessbrady980. We need to take a quick little break, but hopefully those phone lines are going to light up with someone who wants to tell me a really cool story about uh, someone that they've met who is famous. We'll be right back on London Live on 980cfpl. Hey, welcome back to the show. It is indeed London Live. And yes, I am Jess Brady, filling in from Mike Stubbs, as you heard. We are talking about your celebrity. Celebrity encounters. If you have ever run into someone who is famous at a restaurant doing something totally normal, like the rest of us normal people do, uh, but you ran into a celeb, we have a caller. It's very exciting. It's Derek on the line. Derek, who did you meet? How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Oh, hanging in there. Good. Um, I work for uh, the Avis Budget Group. I've been with them for almost 30 years, the bulk of it at Toronto Airport, and uh, met uh, a look at my manifest one day and Michael Ironside was on it. I thought, well, I can't be the same guy. So damned if it wasn't. Uh, Top Gun fame, Total Recall, and actually became friends with him. Wow. Uh, yeah, uh, we emailed back and forth. He's actually from, uh, he lives not only in L.A., but uh, he has a home in Quebec. Um, both his kids go to uh, Canadian schools. Um, he didn't want his kids going to school in the U.S., so hmm. he uh, brought them up here with his wife and uh, just a really, really super guy. Wow, that is quite the story. So a full-on yeah. movie star, and now yep. you got to be friends with him. That's really cool. Yeah, it was nice. Um, uh, one time, uh, my mom was ill, and uh, he came in, and my mom was a big fan of his. So I pulled him into the booth at Terminal 2 in Toronto, and I called the house, and I put Michael on the phone. And um, my mother, I could hear her screaming in the background. <laughs> Aww. Just talking to him on the phone, so it was it was a good coup for her too. Oh, that's so lovely, and I love it when yeah. when celebrities are able to you know uh, make people smile and do a nice thing like that. Well, Derek, thank you so much for the call this afternoon. We appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. You as well. Thanks. That is awesome. Ah, I don't know if we could top that story from Derek. And on that note, I think we better go to news. Uh, So Jacqueline LaBelle is standing by with the latest on what's happening here in town. So we're going to head on out to the news break and we'll be back on London Live on 980 CFPL. Hello and welcome back to the program. You're listening to London Live on 980 CFPL. I have a question for you. Do you eat meat? I do. I like steak. I like burgers. But Something that kind of surprised me this week was finding out that there are nearly, well, nearly 10% of the Canadian population is now vegetarian or vegan. Very interesting information. And to talk about that further is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. He's a professor of food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University in Halifax. And his team actually kind of gathered up this information. And he joins us on the line now to explain a little bit more about it. Hi, Dr. Charlebois. My pleasure. So you've done some pretty interesting research from uh, from your headquarters there at Dalhousie University in Halifax. You've taken a look at the number of people who are vegetarians and vegans in Canada. Uh, what what is the percentage? Uh, actually, we did a study on food recalls, and uh, we happened to ask people what their dietary. Um, uh, preferences were uh, essentially, and that's how we came up with uh, some really interesting data. And in fact, in the fall, this fall, we're going to dig even deeper into the whys and the hows uh, of vegetarianism and veganism. But so far, what we've discovered is that 7.1% of Canadians consider themselves as 
as vegetarians, and uh, 2.3 Canadians consider themselves as being vegans. And so that's that's a that's a high proportion. Uh, the only study we we actually found on vegetarianism was uh, was back in 2003, and at the time it was estimated that 900,000 Canadians consider themselves as uh, vegetarians. And if you look at the 7.1 percent, that equates to about 2.3 million Canadians. That that. It, it's the same amount as uh, as the population of Montreal. I'm I'm very surprised by that number, and but I don't know if I should be really surprised because we have so many more options uh, in our, our our food selection these days, especially in restaurants, and it's it's pretty trendy right now to be looking at vegetarian options and vegan options, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, and you have major uh, food chains looking at uh, offering. Uh, a vegetarian option or even a vegan option to their customers. Uh, uh, some uh, some chains like A and W. A and W is known for its burgers. They actually now offer uh, the Beyond Burger option, which is a vegetarian uh, burger. It's made out of vegetarian uh, veg- uh, uh, vegetable proteins. But it's actually quite. There's there seems to be uh, a moment, <laughs> and it's happening really fast. Uh, more and more people are looking at uh, at uh, at these dietary pref- uh, preferences as uh, as a viable option. Something else that I found really interesting about the results of, from the data was that there's quite a, a difference in the age groups who make up this proportion of the population, or portion of the population, I should say. It's the younger Canadians who are leading the push on this, isn't it? Absolutely, and that's probably the one disturbing fact for uh, coming out of, of the data for the meat industry is that the vast majority of people who consider themselves as, as vegetarians or, or vegans are under the age of 35. Uh, and so these people will become more influential in, in our food economy, uh, and they will likely raise their children uh, based on their culinary or, or food values. And so we, all, we expect uh, numbers to only go up moving forward as a result of, uh, of, of the fact that the younger generation seems to be um, lured towards uh, vegetable proteins much more so than any older folks. That's really interesting, and I think that that sometimes people discount the younger generation a little bit in terms of the the importance of of their vote and their say moving forward because it does hold a lot of sway, especially as they move up in the ranks of uh, of the population and being the uh, main buyers over at the grocery stores out at restaurants it's It has uh, a big impact oh absolutely I think there are four um overpowering narratives happening right now, uh, pushing people to consider uh, vegetable proteins. One is the environment. Uh, more and more people are concerned about the environment, and they see that the livestock uh, or livestock production uh, generates a, a significant uh, carbon footprint, and people are concerned about that. Secondly is animal welfare. Um, a lot of people are concerned about uh, farming practices. They see videos, disturbing videos, and and they may not have lived on the farm. So they the only thing they see uh, are all those videos. Uh, the third one is health, 
the World Health Organization actually a couple of years ago uh, issued a statement about uh, about uh, meat consumption, and I think that resonated across the world, uh, and we're seeing how that may have impacted uh, uh, Canadians' uh, psyche, I guess. And lastly, and, and this is probably the most important one, uh, is price. Vegetable proteins are cheaper uh, than animal proteins in general, especially beef. And so, and in recent years, we've seen the price of meat go up significantly. Uh, and we we suspect that they, that may have uh, invited or enticed consumers to look elsewhere beyond the meat counter. Yeah, absolutely. I know that, uh, you know, having a nice, <laughs> thick, juicy steak is not something that a lot of people can afford, afford to have on the regular. You know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a luxury item now to have on special occasions. Uh, so I can, absolutely. yeah, and especially the younger generation, millennials, uh, we're dealing with sometimes, uh, income insecurity, if you will. So being economical at the grocery store is really important. Oh, absolutely. And so people are careful with their food budget. And if they can actually, um, if they can get educated about options, uh, they'll start looking at lentils or chickpeas. Uh, and sometimes actually canes will not just uh, leave uh, beef or chicken or pork, but they may actually, they may mix things up in the kitchen. For example, if they prepare meatloaf, instead of using beef only, they may use beef and lentils and chickpeas. So you basically get a healthier dish at a lower price. Yeah, that's nice, a nice way of, of compromising, you know, and, and it kind of lends to, uh, you know, even like the health aspect, as you're saying, you know, it's, it's a healthier dish, lower price. It's a nice compromise because then that way people are still almost getting their cake and eat it too, in a way, because they can still have a little bit of beef, but, you know, satisfy the angel on the other side, on the other shoulder and say, yeah, but I'm still behaving. I'm having just a little treat. That, that's right. And that, uh, that speaks to our, our, our meat attachment. And this is, something we see a lot in the literature. Uh, in fact, uh, humans are attached to meat consumption naturally. Uh, it, we've been doing it for, for well, years. <laughs> and so this is something that you can't just uh, get rid of. Uh, we are attached to meat consumption. So by mixing things up, uh, you, you're not compromising taste all that much, and, and people can actually get a sense of of uh, of the taste of beef while uh, exploring other options out there. Certainly. And another part of that attachment, not just biologically for us as humans, but there is a massive attachment to beef and agriculture within our economy. So this change in perception and buying patterns for Canadians will necessarily have at least some kind of impact on the industry, wouldn't you say? It already has had an impact. Uh, in fact, in the U.S. just this week, uh, there was a report uh, stating that uh, there's over 2.5 billion pounds of beef in inventory, which means that uh, demand is contracting and uh, there's there's uh, there's too much supplies uh, for for two reasons. One, there's 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 too much production, but also demand is is retracting as well. So you, you, you can see that uh, the meat industry will need to adapt. My concern about the meat industry is that I'm not entirely convinced that they appreciate what's actually happening. It's actually, I mean, the, the needle is, is really moving, and I'm not sure uh, that uh, they understand how things are moving, and, and they're moving fast. 
And I've met uh, many, many cattle producers in recent months. Uh, I actually uh, delivered a keynote uh, speech in Montreal to the Canadian Meat Council uh, about a month ago. And, and you can feel in the audience that people are a little bit in denial. And given the fact that uh, the food guide is coming up in November, uh, it's going to be released by Health Canada in November, and a lot of people believe that plant-based dieting will be uh, at the forefront of the next food guide, uh, that may, again, encourage Canadians to look elsewhere beyond the meat counter. It's fascinating, really, to see how trends change and how perceptions are are shifting. And it'll be really interesting to see how all of this plays out, especially within the meat industry and, and how they adapt to it. Uh, because, you know, I feel like this is this this change, never ending uh, onwards movement with all sorts of sectors is something that's difficult for uh, all types of businesses to, to grapple with and, and to adapt and overcome, if you will. So it'll be certainly very interesting to see where we go from here. Uh, just before I let you go, uh, Sylvain, I wanted to ask you about uh, the regional breakdown because I thought that was interesting as well. There are different areas of the country where uh, vegetarian and plant-based diets are more popular right now than others, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's something going on in BC uh, for some reason. 60% of uh, all uh, of all Canadians who consider themselves as vegetarians or vegans are resides in BC. Uh, 16% is very high considering that they don't really represent 16% of the Canadian population. So the ratio there is actually quite high compared to other places. Uh, obviously, in the prairies, uh, it's the reverse. Um, a lot of people are still addicted and love uh, meat, uh, of course. Um, but there are differences. The Atlantic is average. Quebec is a little bit on the high side, and Ontario is uh, is is actually slightly below average. Uh, Ontario is known for its multicultural um, uh, food demand, and uh, people coming from uh, different parts of the world uh, sometimes meat is indeed a luxury, and so they weren't necessarily raised um, by uh, eating meat. And so when they come to Canada, they don't necessarily change their their habits. They they stick to their uh, their own culinary traditions. That's probably why you're seeing uh, a softer demand for, for beef uh, or for meat in general in Ontario. It's fascinating. And uh, we look very much forward to the fall when uh, you delve in a little bit deeper into some of the motivations you mentioned in, in your next uh, bit of work that you'll be doing into why people are choosing veganism and vegetarianism over traditional meat options. Well, uh, Sylvain, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Take care. Okay, we need to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will talk with 980 CFPL's very own vegan, Jacqueline Carbone. Hello, hello. When we went to break, we had just wrapped up talking with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. He's from Dalhousie University. His team took a look at uh, some food stats across the country and found that about 10% of the Canadian population is now vegetarian or vegan. They're living with a plant-based diet. Now, we have someone on staff here at 980 CFPL who is also on a plant-based diet. And that would be Jacqueline Carbone, one of our reporters here at 980 CFPL. Hey, Jacqueline, thanks for joining I us. I am happy to be here. <laughs> now, this is a topic that you are obviously very passionate about. You yourself are a vegan. I am. I am. It's been about uh, two years now. And before that, I uh, took a year break and was doing it for two years before. So it's been it's been a little bit of a convoluted journey. 
Okay. And so what was the, I guess, motivation to to become a vegan? Were you like vegetarian first and then vegan? Was vegetarianism your gateway <laughs> path to veganism? Um, so the very, very first time I went vegan, I uh, had uh, just was eating, uh, you know, as an omnivore, uh, meat and dairy and all those things. And uh, I think uh, I always like doing I'm not a super religious person, but for Lent, I always like to see what I can do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Give something up or start do something for those uh, those 40 days. Um, so the year before, and this, I can't remember what year, this was probably five, six years ago, I uh, went vegetarian, vegetarian for Lent and it was, uh, it was like kind of too easy. Hmm. I mean, I didn't feel like I was giving much up. It wasn't a struggle. Um, so uh, that's how I learned that I wasn't eating that much meat anyway. Hmm. So the next year, I was my first year in university and I was like, I'm going to do vegan. Uh, so I went vegan for Lent, which was, uh, I guess it was a little more difficult, uh, because I was in residence. Um, and you only have so many things that you can eat. Um, but I didn't find it as hard as uh, people thought it was. People around me thought it was. I got a lot of questions like, are you getting enough protein? Are you tired? Are you this? And I'm like, no, I'm like, I feel good. Totally fine. Like, make sure I'm eating. You got to make sure you eat enough. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely been a learning process. And uh, so that's how I initially got into it. And then because of that, I was like, hey, I'm going to learn a, bit, a little bit about it. I watched uh, Vegucated. I watched Earthlings. Um, just a lot of documentaries about kind of the whole uh, factory farming and uh, things like that. And I, it really um, hit me that uh, these are living creatures and I don't want to eat uh, a living creature. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be the root of their suffering. And, uh, you know, if they're if they can feel pain and they can suffer, then I, we shouldn't. Well, for me, at least. And I think trying to obviously push it on everybody else <laughs> as much as I can without being too fanatical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they feel pain, and they can suffer. Then that's really what's what what uh what got me uh, into veganism, into sticking with it. It's interesting because in my conversation with uh, Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie, when in the study that they did, and and it was I think in unintentional information that they they gathered about rates in Canada, and saying now that about ten percent of the Canadian population is either vegetarian or vegan. Are you like surprised to hear that number, or is this sort of like? like a moment where you're like, yeah, why everyone's just catching up with this information now? Cause you um, knew all along. <laughs> I guess uh, like, no, I did stuff like new information. I didn't know mm-hmm. like those numbers specifically and yeah. it's uh, exciting to hear, but I don't think I'm necessarily surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, especially living here in London, like we have a huge hub of veganism, vegan, vegan foods. Like there's globally local, there's plant matter bistro, plant matter kitchen, plant matter cafe. There's uh, just a number, like, n- like there's numerous places you can go to get mm-hmm. vegan food. And on top of that, there's a lot of advocacy groups. I know there's a, uh, Kind of like London, London Licious. Uh, there's the, um, it's like you can travel, like go to a yeah. different bunch of vegan, different vegan restaurants or yeah. even restaurants that aren't necessarily vegan offering a three course meal that for, uh, for people just to try taste of vegan London. That's what it's called. There you go. Okay. <laughs> um, so li- living in London, I, uh, definitely seen it grow and change. Um, when I go to different cities, it's a little more iffy. Um, and because I'm kind of immersed in the culture here, I guess I'm not too surprised. Um, but, uh, it's, it's exciting to see. And I, it's, I think it shows that it's not just a fad. It's, uh, something that's going to stick around for a little while. Yeah, something that I was uh, that Sylvain was mentioning as well is the demographic breakdown in terms of the age group where this is becoming more noticeable. It's younger people. Uh, I think it's the under thirty five crowd, in fact, of the millennials that are uh, really pushing this increase in veganism and vegetarian rates. Um, what have I guess the maybe older members of your family thought about your your lifestyle change? 
when I first did it, my uh, everyone was kind of my, they were on board, like on board for me doing it, like yeah. willing to support me, but also really confused. I would still get, oh, it's just some egg, it's just some cheese. Like, what's the big deal? And I'm like, eh. but um, my mom actually went vegan probably a year ago. Really? And uh, just she just like every now and then she's just like, I can't believe I was eating animals. Like, I can't believe I was doing that for so long. These poor little guys. Right. So that so she's really like really stuck to it and she's been a huge support for me. But now she comes back and she's like, I am so sorry that I said like it's just an egg, it's just this because like she's getting that now. And like you kind of when you go vegan, you kind of learn that you're that people are kind of going to question what you're doing. They're going to throw constant. The, literally, the question you always get is where do you get your protein? Where do you get your protein? Like, don't worry, everybody. We're getting our protein. No one has ever asked anybody if they had a protein deficiency before until they went vegan. Right. So I think um it depends who you talk to. A lot of people are more open to it than others. We uh, had my dad on it for a little bit just because we, my mom cooks for him, so we didn't mm-hmm. really have a choice. Um, but he's since gone back to kind of eating omnivore. Just uh, that's how he's grown up, and it's kind of he's one of those guys who's just stubborn, stubborn, and not really too willing to to change. But he supports me, and he supports us in doing it, uh, which I think is really important to have that kind of that system around you. Um, and my uh, my significant other Justin, he's also vegan, which makes it a uh, uh, is a huge help when you're sitting in the household. Um, we recently had a roommate move in who isn't vegan, and just having that stuff around there is is tempting, even though you know you don't want to eat it. But just having it around there is really makes you makes you work a lot harder to uh, to stick to something um, to stick to it, and you have to just you know constantly remind yourself and show yourself why you're doing this. Yeah, it's interesting too. You know, when you talk about. Um motivations for changing over uh, to vegetarianism or veganism. Obviously, there are those people like yourself who have um, concerns about uh, the animal treatment. There are other people who are concerned about the health impacts of having a lot of red meats in their diet. There's also the interesting fact that veganism and vegetarianism often is less expensive because you're not buying expensive meats that, you know, the price of meat has really gone up, especially in the last few years. So like you're saving quite a bit of money on your grocery bill too, eh? For sure. I uh, I went to, we actually went to a bulk barrel yesterday, which I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do zero waste at the same time. It's been a, Ooh, you've it's got been a super lot fun. Of, a lot of campaigns going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to be good for the environment, okay? Yeah. Um, we went yesterday and I spent $110 and basically got all my protein, all my... Uh, protein except for like tofu and stuff but like all my beans all my lentils um all my rice and peanuts and walnuts and like all those things i, I spent 100 bucks and got that all I'm, I'm probably set for me and me and justin are probably set for three months wow right? we won't have to go back uh sometimes you're like at near the end of the three months you're kind of just like piecing things together yeah. but like we'll be pretty good for the next uh little while and then you're just upping your uh, vegetables really and it's uh it's not and I, yeah, I definitely would say it's less expensive. It's hard for me to compare because I don't really have a mm-hmm. comparison to give it to. I'm not going to start buying meat just to see how much yeah. is it, <laughs> less expensive is it. And I think it it, it confuses people because veganism, when you start, you're like thinking of um, replacements, right? Mm-hmm. You're buying all these brands like Tofurky and uh, um, Ives burgers and stuff like that um, when you can just make that stuff at home. Like yeah. I make my own uh, make my own burgers or make my own vegetable broth. Like it's all the those replacements that are a little bit more expensive that might put you a little bit over and make you think it's more expensive. But once mm-hmm. you kind of dig into it, like I make my own. It's called seitan and it's like vegan. Uh, it's like vegan lunch meat basically, and you can use it for like beef and broccoli and stuff like that. And it cost me I can't I can't imagine I can make three or four. Uh, like like big logs that are about I don't know how long is this? It's like a foot, like a foot, yeah. <laughs> big like big like logs Radio that are about a foot like, long. We can't tell. <laughs> this long, yeah. Um, that'll that'll last me for like two weeks, and I can make probably three or four of those 
with like maybe fifteen dollars of of uh, of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, that and that specific uh, source of protein has seventy five grams of protein per a hundred grams. Um, which I think is a crazy amount of protein. So if you are going to eat that, be a little, be careful because <laughs> we might be overdoing the protein a little bit there. So moral of the story is do your research, find out what is perhaps the best fit for you, and uh, yeah, give it a whirl if it's something that you're interested in. So Definitely. I agree. So uh, yes, go vegan or at least try. <laughs> at least try. <laughs> All right. Well, Jacqueline Carbone, ACE reporter for 980 CFPL, thank you so much for coming in today and uh, chatting with us about veganism and vegetarianism. Thanks for letting me uh, spew, some, spew some knowledge on the, <laughs> on the world. <laughs> All right. Now it is time for news with Jacqueline LaBelle on 980 CFPL. Hello, hello, hello. We are back on the program, London Live. And it's hard to believe that we are into our last half hour here. I just, I don't know where the time goes. It flies. With that being said, I'm going to stop yammering away and I'm going to get to our lovely guest who is sitting across the desk from me. We have Francis Moore from No Kikwe here in London. And Francis, thank you, first of all, for being here in studio with us and, and taking the time to come in and see us. Thank for having me. And second of all, you are with an organization that maybe not everyone in London knows about. They should. It's doing fantastic work. And that's why we're talking about it today, because we want to get to know it a little bit better. Tell us about No Kikwe. Okay. Uh, so uh, No Kikwe provides culturally sensitive, um, client-centered, and a holistic approach to trying to find solutions to employment and learning barriers mm. um, for both the Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities um, in London. So there's a few factions of our organization. Um, first of all, our uh, board of directors is 50% Indigenous. So that's something unique within within this particular area. Um, and then we also have a great uh, program director, Deb Armstrong, and we have career directions. So that is for job seekers and for um, employers so that they can connect together um, and vice versa. Uh, we also have the Native Education Center. It provides educational services, um, assessments, links, and other supports. And then we have the program that I manage, a Positive Voice. Um, just last year, we won the Pillar Innovation Award. Um, and it's specifically for urban Indigenous women in London transitioning between or going to either employment or education. And now the that that program has different sessions, right? There's it's it's really neat the way that it's structured and and the opportunities yes. that it offers. Uh, so we have uh, two upcoming sessions in the fall. Um, the next one starts on October. You think that I would remember <laughs> after the amount of times that I've I've done it? It's the eleventh, I believe. No, it goes until the 25th and it starts September 11th. There Perfect. we go. There you are. Um, so it's seven weeks long um, and we cover a variety of topics um, in that seven weeks. We have guest speakers and, and whatnot uh, that come in. And then at the very end um, of the two sessions, we'll actually have an exhibit with all of the work. That's fantastic. And so what types of skills or uh, connections are participants building when they take part in those sessions? Um, it's multifaceted and different for everybody mm -hmm. um, because our program is open for urban Indigenous women, um, 18 years of older. Uh, we do have lots of different uh, skill sets and places in life. Um, with that being said, um, you know, we work on various different things. So digital media and digital art is a big one. Uh, interacting within our community and networking is another one. Uh, we also have done things 
like uh, fancy shawl making, skirt make, skirt making. Mm-hmm. Um, we create the postcards that yeah. I, I brought to you today. Um, so all the women get a camera and um, they are taught how to use it by a fantastic uh, woman by the name of Echo. And um, they take photos and they create memes and whatnot using Canava. Mm-hmm. And we pass them out. Uh, many of them have stories on the back because one of the biggest things, obviously, is creative creating positive narratives. Mm-hmm. So in our own word, in our own words, and on our own terms, um, the stories can be shared. That's brilliant. And. I'm just taking a look at some of these postcards. I wish that uh, – actually, I don't have to wish. We can take pictures and, Absolutely, and, yes. and you know post them through the Twitter account and everything uh, to let people see the type of work that's been done because it is uh, – it's it's very profound and it's very moving to mm-hmm. see the messages from individuals as in their own words, as you've said. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the most impactful and, and so much of what um, – I love about the work that I do is being able to talk with people and hear their stories and do my best to help that story reach more people so that it can help others or, you know, just make an impact. So it's, that's it's, what I love about yeah. my job, too. Yeah. No, it's it's so great to see people being able to uh, have that power to share their own story. A lot of the program is about empowerment. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the women, when we start out the program, they say, I'm just mm-hmm. a mom, just this, just that. And by the end of the program, um, they are able to more confidently, you know, get up in front of a crowd and express themselves. Um, but we cover so much um, and, and empower them in, in ways of sharing um, sharing stories and making sure that our office is a safe space. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some sometimes there's some pretty heavy conversations that go on um, based on what some of the women have been through. Um, but it's nice to have beautiful. Um, art come out of it mm-hmm. and um, connections I think is the main the main thing so a lot of the women in the program have um, formed a little bit of a collective mm-hmm. <laughs> they call themselves the warrior woman of the positive drum they have a drum group um, that they get together and they sing together and they mm-hmm. support one another which some of them didn't have that network before some did have networks yeah. um, but you know, not all networks are created equal. And I love that all the women have been through the same program and through the same kind of experience yeah. and can be there for one another. I think that's so so key in, in many, many ways. If you see in different communities, uh, whether it's new mums or, um, you know, stay-at-home dads who are there, you know, it's, it's key for people to be able to tap into others to help find support when they need that, when they may feel a little isolated or, you know, depending on whatever experience they've been through, it's fantastic to know that there are agencies out there, uh, you know, like just like what you guys are doing to help people tap into that sense of community and move forward and create those positive new paths forward. It's mm-hmm. really great. And so who is eligible then uh, to take part in the program? Uh, female identifying uh, urban Indigenous women in the London area. Um, doesn't matter if you are status or not, uh, what your blood quantum is, mm-hmm. um, if you're affiliated with uh, a nation or whatnot. Um, we are happy to work with any individual who's looking at um, either going back to some sort of education mm-hmm. or um, perhaps into employment. And we, there are a lot of the a lot of the skills that we touch base on are, are going to help bridge those gaps. So, you know, I've had women who have come through the program who the skills that they've worked with photography and Canava have come in handy with their school projects. Yeah. Um, public speaking has come in handy for a lot of the women that have been transitioning into um, in employment as well. Mm-hmm. 
That's amazing. And you never really know exactly what will take root in someone Mm -hmm. and where it'll end up down the road, you know? And we have so many talented women that come through the program that Mm -hmm. um, have downplayed their abilities. Mm. And I'm going to be honest, I do the same thing. Um, You know, prior uh, prior to this, I worked um, with immigrants and newcomers, and I would hear a lot of them say, um, downplay their their skills and education. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I did it myself because one of the things that we are taught is humility and being humble. Yes. Um, So for me, it's hard to boast and say, I am this and I do this and I do this. Um, and I think that's something that we have gotten away from um, with this. Now they stand up and they say, I am, I do, I can. Excellent. And that's amazing for me. I, I think that's wonderful all around. More of us need to be doing that for Absolutely. sure. Good lessons for everyone coming out of the Positive Voice program. It's wonderful. And so if people want some more information on how they can get involved or if they want to take part, be clients or, you know, help out, facilitate in any I way. I would love. Yeah. I'm looking for um, Indigenous artists mm-hmm. and uh, facilitators for the upcoming programs. Um, we try to switch it up every um, every little bit. We've had everything from, drum, like I said, drum making, um, making fancy shawls, skirts. Um, there's, you know, a couple things in the works right now regarding um, dance and movement. Um, but if anyone is interested in either facilitating or um, coming and being a participant, they can reach out to myself um, at Francis, F-R-A-N-C-E-S-M, at dot com, And my phone number is 519-667-7088. Fantastic. Well, Francis, thank you so much for coming in today and thank sharing. You, hey, you know what? And sharing like what the what the story is is with the group and mm-hmm. just how much good work you're doing with the community. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jess. We need to take a quick break. We'll be right back on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. We are rapidly running out of time, which is insane. This two-hour slot just goes by so quickly. What I want to talk to you about next is uh, EpiPens. You know, allergies seem to be on the rise every single day. There are tons of kids with peanut allergies, bee allergies, you name it. Thankfully, we have medical advancements like the EpiPen, epinephrine shot into your leg. You can have, buys you a little time until the paramedics get there and can get you to a hospital for further care. Well, what happens when there's a shortage of EpiPens? When there's a problem with Pfizer, who produces the EpiPens? (laughs) Yeah, then we run into a problem. That's what's happening right now. Pfizer sent out an advisory, I think yesterday, saying that there is a shortage. They're advising people that that shortage is going to run until the end of August, most likely. And that means people need to hold on to the EpiPens that they have, even if they are expired. To talk more about that with us. We have Jeff Robb on the line. He's the owner and pharmacist at Turner's Drug, which is in Old South on Grand Ave. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So we've heard from Health Canada about uh, the shortage of the EpiPens, and it's the adult dose, correct? Right. And so... The the junior is available. It's uh, 0.15 milligrams, so it's half of the adult dose. It's, you know, it's a scary situation anytime you have a medication that is, uh, you know, running short of any kind, uh, but it's especially epinephrine and EpiPens because this is basically the only treatment that's available in Canada that people can have, uh, you know, next to them in their bag or in their purse or whatever it is. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, it's not a good situation. Anaphylaxis is, is a, an emergent health uh, concern and uh, it's... Uh, 
very unfortunate that the suppliers cannot uh, meet the demand. Certainly, and it's interesting. I was doing a little bit of reading about this. Uh, our our, uh, our sister station uh, in Global News in Toronto uh, wrote up an article saying that um, there's only one facility for Pfizer that produces this drug. It's down in, I think, in St. Louis in Missouri. Uh, how common is it that a drug company would like only have one place where they make a specific uh, type of medication? Well, it, I, I can't speak to industry. Industry is you know, uh, they they have their own rules and regulations and supply chains and whatnot. But yeah, it is troubling that there would be, would only be one place, and and if that that uh, facility isn't available or or can't supply it, then you you would hope, especially for something as 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 urgent as as this particular drug, that uh, that there would be a, a second um, second or third or fourth place for that matter to. Uh, it is uh, a troubling thing, as you've said, to only have a one place where you can get uh, this specific drug. And so they're saying right through until the end of August, eh, for the for the delay to, to remain? That's the current information that, that I have as well. Pfizer sent us a uh, document yesterday saying that, you know, they, they apologize, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it doesn't, uh, doesn't do much for someone who's in trouble. So if indeed you come into contact with a food food um, uh, product that you're allergic to or a bee sting or, or whatever, um, just get yourself to hospital as, as quickly as possible. And, um, you know, they can uh, administer epinephrine to you as, you know, from a, from a stock bottle or, or however they do it. So emergency rooms should be able to cover this off. But uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people will, you know, succumb before they can get to to, to the hospital. It's a, a frightening situation. Uh, you know, these are medications that people depend on on a daily basis to make sure that they're able to uh, function properly and m- like without fear of every everyday yeah. occurrences because yeah, you absolutely. never know. Yeah, it's, um, it's like an insurance policy. If, if you have it, you won't need it. But the minute you don't have it, you need it. So, you know, it's... Uh, it's peace of mind and it's safety, and uh, as you say, it, it, it's just something that uh, you know people that uh, have allergies have to live with, and uh, and peace of mind is 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 essential. Certainly. Now, Health Canada is saying that um, the, the expiration dates on the EpiPens, they'll say a month, say August, but it's good until August 31st. Um, and they're saying that if you do run into a problem, go ahead and use the expired one. What is that like in terms of the effectiveness, I guess? It, is it, uh, where do you draw that line? And best before dates on food, it's always a discussion about, oh, can you still use it after it's sure. past that date? But in terms of a medication, people are obviously going to feel a little nervous about using something right. like that. Um, the general rule of thumb with um, pharmaceuticals and uh, natural products and whatnot is that actually six months after the expiry, uh, the product should um, maintain its original, um, you know, strength or potency. Uh, I can't speak to um, the uh, injectables. I I would. Uh, I, I would follow what Pfizer has said and what Health Canada has said and, and just take it and get yourself to, to the emergency room as, as soon as you can. But, um, uh, you know, uh, a month after the expiry, I, I don't see it's going to fail in, in any way. 
Um, it, it's a sterile product, so uh, bacteria, viruses, fungi—they're they're not going to affect it either. It's, so I, I I concur with uh, Health Canada. It seems like this is—I mean, it's a bad situation, but it also seems like we're getting off easy here in terms of how bad it could easily have been. Uh, hopefully, they'll have a new supply out. The next shipment will come out, and people won't really be left too much in the lurch. Um, sure. But if it was like a longer-standing problem, if there were further production issues at this plant in in uh, St. Louis, I mean, it's scary to think of what could actually happen because we are dependent upon these things. Absolutely, and um, unfortunately, with the politics in uh, the states the way they are, um, I'm pretty sure they're going to supply their own uh, folks before they supply other folks. Um, sad to say. That leads us to a whole other question of ethics in uh, in pharmaceuticals, and uh, you know, uh, holding to obligations and uh, the moral, uh, I suppose, question of, of of supplying an entire world with this type of uh, medicine, or at least certainly North America and Canada. There's this is the only option for people to have uh, the, that type of medication on their person. So it's uh, certainly a troubling issue, and and hopefully everyone is going to you know just be all right, and and it's a short, uh, hopefully a short um, issue that we have to deal with or span of time where this is a problem. Uh, I don't know if you have this information off the top of your head or uh, about how many people would you say uh, come to Turner's for, for this medication where they're asking you to fill their EpiPens? Uh, I would say we have 50 clients that, that use it. Some, some people use it more often than, than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, uh, some people just have it on their person and never use it and it expires and they get another one. Others use it, um, you know, Every month, or every other month, or you know, again, it, every snowflake is different. So, uh, but uh, you're right; it, it's an emergent product. It 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 is something that that is absolutely necessary if if a person is in trouble. And so if anyone has any questions about, uh, they're hearing this perhaps for the first time, hearing it this afternoon, and they look down in their bag and say, I have an EpiPen. It's supposed right. to expire in, in August. Uh, they should just give you a call and, and get some clarification, eh? Yeah, for sure. But uh, when in doubt, use the product and, again, get yourself to the emergency room as, as soon as you can. And so one other thing we wanted to mention before we let you go, Jeff, is that uh, Turner's has been dispensing this good advice for a really long uh, time, I hear. Yeah, we uh, turn 80 years old tomorrow, August 1st. That is a wonderful anniversary. So what yeah, do you I, have planned to, to celebrate? Well, we had a lovely concert on the weekend. Uh, Trent Severn uh, played with us, or for us, excuse me, and um, uh, many guests were there. Uh, Brent Jones came. Um, Ron Sexsmith uh, did a song, Brought Me to Tears. Today we're having a uh, charity barbecue. I've, I've designated um, Community Living London as my charity. I, I didn't want to make this about me. I wanted to, to make make it about, um, you know, giving back to the community. So all proceeds from our barbecue today and yesterday and actually the, um, uh, the concert on, on the weekend are going to Community Living. We're doing a raffle, um, and uh, all, the pro, all the products have been donated by suppliers and, and friends, and uh, every penny is going to uh, Community Living. I figure at this point we'll... Um, be over ten thousand dollars for the uh, for the organization, uh, just as a, a thank you and um, uh, recognize the good work that they do.
Well, that's fantastic. Jeff, thank you again for your time today to talk about the EpiPen situation and all of that good advice. And congratulations on the 80th anniversary of Turner's. I hope you guys have a great celebration and a really nice time with the community. Okay. Thanks so much. Cheers. Well, that is it from us today. It was a jam-packed show. Thank you to all of our guests. Thank you to Andrew Graham, our producer extraordinaire. And thank you to Derek, who called in to tell us his celeb story. All right, that's it from us. We will see you in about 22 hours' time. Have a great day.